You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Anti-Catholicism, Orientalism, Devil Worship, Rape, Murder, and Ghosts! Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. justice to Mr. Walpole's memory to allege that all that he aimed at in the Castle of Otranto was the art of exciting surprise and horror, or in other words, the appeal to that secret and reserved feeling of love for the marvelous and supernatural which occupies a hidden corner in almost everyone's bosom. The natural parts of the narratives are so contrived that they associate themselves with the marvelous occurrences, and by the force of that association, render those speciosa miracula striking and impressive though our cooler reason admits their impossibility. Indeed, to produce, in a well-cultivated mind, any portion of that surprise and fear which is founded on supernatural events, the frame and tenor of the whole story must be adjusted in perfect harmony with this mainspring of the interest. He who, in early youth, has happened to pass a solitary night in one of the few ancient mansions which the fashion of more modern times has left undespoiled of their original furniture, has probably experienced that the gigantic and preposterous figures dimly visible in the defaced tapestry, the remote clang of the distant doors which divide him from living society, the deep darkness which involves the high and fretted roof of the apartment, the dimly seen pictures of ancient knights renowned for their valor and perhaps for their crimes, the varied and indistinct sounds which disturb the silent desolation of a half-deserted mansion, and to crown all, the feeling that carries us back to the ages of feudal power and papal superstition, joined together to excite a corresponding sensation of supernatural awe, if not of terror. It is in such situations when superstition becomes contagious that we listen with respect, and even with dread, to the legends which are our sport in the garish light of sunshine, and amid the dissipating sights and sounds of everyday life. From Sir Walter Scott's introduction to the Castle of Otranto. Hello, welcome to What Mad Universe, my brethren. Uh, I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Good morrow to you, sir. Good morrow. Let us avail of the... Let us descend to the dungeon and drink of the devil's droughts as we pursue this uh, story of gothic horror, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Um, 
boy, this almost is feeling like a Halloween. We already have a Halloween episode lined up. But this, is, <laughs> this is feeling kind of Halloween-y, isn't it? Um, yep, or it could have been a Christmas episode with all the St. Nicholas content. <laughs> that would have been a stretch, I still say. St. <laughs> um, Nicholas is all, the, all through this book, I'm just saying. He's the patron saint of the area, yes. But he's not... It's the it's St. Nicholas in his non-Santa Claus form, basically. So, yeah, there you but, go. Yeah, but, you know... Yeah, <laughs> he is. He's in there. Fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is a, a significant book. You might have heard of it if you're a student of the student of liter- literary stuff as the uh, origin of the Gothic novel, which uh, was a major literary movement in the especially the early 19th century, which is quite a bit after this book was published. Um, this book was uh, 17. 64 i think was the yeah 1764 uh and uh it actually took a while to, it took like a generation to sort of start influencing all the other writers uh but then as you get into the 19th century you've got all these other writers including um uh a martin Mar- uh, sorry not martin lewis matthew lewis um he wrote a book called the monk which has all the sort of uh dark depravity uh and you know satan worship and black magic and clanking chains and hauntings and things. That, yeah, I had uh, heard of The Monk. It's uh, it's usually listed as like a possibly a parody of this. It's it's unclear. Well, that's this seems to be a recurring thing with gothics that a lot of critics are like, well, did they mean this seriously mm-hmm. <laughs> or did they not? Uh, including this book itself, uh, Castle of Otranto, was was seen as, um, uh, you know, people... And, and Horace Walpole, who wrote it, uh, he seems to have actually gone back and forth between, you know, oh yeah, I was serious. No, 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 I was, I was just joking. It was just a goof. Yeah, uh, the because Tommy he didn't... Wiseau effect. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, a little quite. harsh. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> but he definitely didn't like. I think, uh, as I understand it, he released this book and it was uh, somewhat favorably seen. And he 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 released it as, um, oh, I translated this from an Italian manuscript. Uh, it was received rather well. Then he basically came out and said, "Actually, I wrote the whole thing. It's not not based on an Italian manuscript." And then it Actually, apparently, that, that, uh, if I'm can interject a joke, there's a freakazoid bit where uh, we're saying it was, originally critics loved this episode, but that all changed when they found out it wasn't European. <laughs> yes. Well, in this case, they found out it wasn't written by you know an ancient author in <laughs> in Italy, and was written by not just. Um, you know, so not just contemporaneous, but I think it was also because he was a, a respected, uh, well-off. He was literally a lord, and it was seen as sort of beneath him to write such a such a lurid and tawdry tale. Um, and that's um, yeah. And that, it, it's it's strange that they you know they were convinced that it was a um, an actual medieval manuscript, and then when they found out it wasn't, they thought it was terrible. Like yeah, <laughs> it, it's actually impressive to to faithfully reconstruct that I know an ancient style I mean that's it's just strange well it's I mean I think that sort of shows you how snobby and yeah uh, how much literary uh, tradition back then would sort of blow with the winds and w- what they were told not like today of course <laughs> uh, but I mean obviously the critics uh, have rendered it immortal it's it's they you know they've they continued to talk about it for years, and uh, and as we say, it, it ended up influencing stuff uh, in the late 19, in the early nineteenth century. There was another book by um, um, uh, Math- William Beckford called Vathek, 
which is Arabesque, Arabian Nights, but it's also considered to be an early Gothic or, yeah, no, or, or yeah. a Gothic novels. Uh, we've also yeah, talked I read about that. Uh, I read through that quickly uh, this week. Um, I, I didn't write yeah. enough down to talk about it uh, intelligently, but it was it was very interesting. Um, well, I, well, we'll 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 talk about sort of how it relates to the Gothics, I think. Yeah, right? because you can see a pattern that emerges out of that. And there's also a, a book called Melmoth the Wanderer. Um, which is uh, significant. I believe it was written by uh, a relative of, of Oscar Wilde, and Oscar Wilde went by the name uh, Melmoth later uh, when he was uh, uh, writing under nom de plume. And, uh, of course, we've talked about Anne Radcliffe uh, earlier in the uh, the Vampire City episode. Uh, and she was, she, was a, she was a very significant Gothic writer. Uh, she was sort of dominant. Uh, dominant gothic writer she was the Anne rice of her day as we've said except she didn't actually write about vampires despite being in vampire city but we covered yeah. that in that episode and, uh, as we talked about in that one uh she uh apparently avoided um explicitly supernatural things like supernatural right. things would supposedly happen but there would be a explanation for them uh a rational explanation not so in this book really right it's it was uh, and that's actually one of the things that's significant of this about this book and we'll I'll get into that in in, in just a bit and then of course uh, Frankenstein is is considered to be a gothic novel although because that's also considered sometimes to be the first science fiction novel it uh, it's which is a not <laughs> well there's that that's become controversial now but you you know it's it's let's say a significant point in the development of science fiction yes um and um and as a result it sometimes gets sort of separated a bit from uh, the gothics but in intent at the time it was almost certainly intended as a gothic novel um so that's so that and then um in the dover thrift edition of this book uh which is what i read uh they actually are very insistent that um gothics died out in the early 19th century and that everything since then is considered to be by them not truly a gothic anymore but just uh, you know, evolving out of its aesthetic, uh, because the, for some, they they're of the belief that you had to have certain intents and certain uh, certain framework for what you're writing to be a gothic novel, and it became more, it, it basically just evolved into more the horror genre as we know it, um, and gothic was a very specific thing. Some, you know, but then you can debate that for ages whether it's not, or, and of course, gothic aesthetics and gothic style goes all the way up to the present. It, it never went away after that. Um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe is considered to be sometimes a gothic writer. Dracula might be considered gothic. Uh, everything about the universal horror movies <laughs> would be gothic. You know, it's the aesthetic of you know a haunted castle on the moors, crackling thunder, you know, secret passages, ghosts, hauntings, curses. Uh, you know, often a, uh, a family a woman, curse of some sort. Yeah, it's passed down. There's often the idea that you know the Lord or whoever's in charge is you know he has committed sins. Uh, you know whether it's often murder, but although in this book it's actually not murder, oddly enough, um, he's a usurper. And then there's often also the uh, the idea of a you know a woman, an innocent woman who gets drawn, and often she gets romanced by this you know. Uh, figure. It's almost a Count Darcy thing, but it takes a sinister turn. Also, the, yeah. the, st the story of Bluebeard, you know, she gets pulled away to this uh, family estate out in the moors and discovers a terrible secret, and she's the viewpoint character, the sort of innocent viewpoint character. No, which you with see, although, Bluebeard, the, the moral was that you shouldn't go snooping. 
<laughs> well, see, with Bluebeard, I always feel like if she hadn't gone snooping, she wouldn't have found out that her husband was a murderer, and that yeah. wouldn't have been better. You know, it's, that it's um, it's uh, moral dissonance with uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right, and and the uh, the the and even you know uh, the novel Rebecca uh, by Daphne du Maurier um, has very strong gothic element, even though there's nothing supernatural about it. But it's the same thing of I married, I got fell in love, I got married, I went away to this guy's rich home, and it's quote haunted unquote except in that case it's not literally haunted but there's a you know there's a secret lingering in the past uh of course that's something we've seen endlessly over and over again throughout literature yeah and, and also and uh wuthering heights and things like that which right now with gothic it is more explicitly horror and usually considered to have something supernatural although as we said Anne radcliffe always explained away her supernatural yeah. stuff but um, i, I but I was saying Wuthering Heights is sort of uh, influenced by this uh, rather than being an explicit uh, uh, entry in the genre. But um, it, it definitely has elements with the, you know, uh, romantic, Byronic figures and all that. And the setting. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, I think this has cast a very long shadow over literature in general, even literature that isn't considered to be horror or genre fiction. Uh, just the the atmosphere and the aesthetic is so strong, um, and also for historical factors, which uh, we'll get into in a minute. Um, but so let me just talk about uh, Horace Walpole, who is the author of this book, Castle of Otranto. Uh, he was the son of Sir Robert Walpole, Lord Orford, uh, who was a very successful British politician of the early 1700s. Horace was left with a substantial enough fortune and social standing to pursue a variety of interests. So he traveled Europe, he did all the sort of uh, idle rich stuff, but he apparently, you know, he wanted to pursue various uh, things. He wanted to do something with his money instead of just lounging around. Uh, he did run for office, and in fact, Castle Vaudrinto was apparently written while he was a member of parliament. Um, and that might actually also be a reason why he didn't want to come forward initially and say that he was the writer. It's, it's actually significant to note that the, at various points, uh, I couldn't pin it to a historical timeline, but there are definitely periods in which um, writing a novel was actually seen as a bit trashy. It wasn't seen as a very respectable thing to do. Um, yep. Like when you get to the 19th century, it was often seen as a woman's occupation mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with, of course, uh, the Brontes and, and, and Jane Austen and so on. There's um, a black adder bit that all the, the female novelists from the period were actually pen names for men. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's 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 it was that probably did actually happen, although not yeah. with the Brontes and, and yeah, Jane yeah. Austen. But but um, well, I, I, I've never been totally clear on how. Like, I, of course, I'm. I, I think it's a case of we say the general perception was dot dot dot. But of course, there were plenty of critics and people who could think for themselves and recognize good writing when they saw it and not, and not just automatically uh, discard it. Obviously there's been, there's a reason why Jane Austen and the Brontes are still remembered uh, to this day. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think it was seen as a bit of a, a, da a thing you dabble in. It wasn't, the novel wasn't held. I, I think it's, you have to get to the very late 1900s or 20th centuries before you start seeing the novel seen as this really, significant important art form at least in england and western europe um i, I put a put an asterisk on that because i'm not an expert in the general literary development of the novel uh but it, it, certainly there have been periods in which it was seen as a bit of a as as a bit of a, a dismissible 
genre. Um, anyway, so he was able to uh, build a giant manor called Strawberry Hill, which he built based on the ideas of medieval. So he was fascinated with medieval, Walpole this is, uh, he was fascinated with medieval stuff. Um, he collected medieval artifacts and art, and he built this manor without really being thoroughly knowledgeable about architecture, but to be what his idea of medieval was. Um, so this is, you know, starting a trend, maybe not starting, but continuing a trend of, well, it's going to be, quote, medieval, but I, you know, I don't really, I'm not a, a historian, I just have an idea of the collective imagination of medievalism. And sure, uh, what, as a result... What, uh, a medievalism feels like rather than what it actually was. Right. And that and that transfers into the literary genre of of uh, gothic as well. It's that sort of it's sort of an enhanced um expressionistic version of the middle ages uh in some ways uh, rather than any attempt to be historically <laughs> accurate. And uh so when he built this strawberry hill it was it was uh, inspiring his his book in the same way and apparently you know he just made uh, strawberry hill into the castle in Otranto. Uh the geography corresponds to the to the same uh, castle and um, and he subtitled it and this is this is entirely his doing he subtitled it quote a gothic novel unquote um, and that's why the term became known as gothic uh, so it was uh, a book that he actually published as a uh, well, he had a vanity press called Strawberry Hill Press, but apparently he didn't publish it through Strawberry Hill. Again, he probably wanted to distance himself from it enough at the time. Uh, so it was actually a small print run in the 500s. As I was saying, that's that's what Lord Dunsany did as well. Um, he, you know, again, he could dabble in writing. Um, and, uh, you know, as again, the, it was seen as a bit lowbrow and people turned on it after it came out. But then over time, it's become... Uh, it's become indicated as a literary milestone. Um, I think at this point we're going to pause and uh, hear from our sponsors for a moment. We'll be right back after this. Come on in. What can I get you? Sure, I've heard of Hair of the Dogcast. They're that podcast about video games and beer. From the latest gaming headlines to diving deep into the games of yesterday to sampling and reviewing craft beer from all over the world, Hair of the Dogcast is here for the gamer and beer lover in all of us. Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. About, so Phil, you, why don't you talk? Uh, tell us about the uh, the the, uh, the plot of the novel here. Uh, well, it's uh, it's basically a soap opera. I, I don't mean that dismissively, but it um, it basically like uh, an elevated soap opera, like uh, Mad Men or something, you know, um, <laughs> um, including the the period setting. Um, Manfred is the um, uh, prince of uh, Otrato. He's sort of like a feudal, well, he's a feudal lord um, with uh, complete control over surround the surrounding area. Um, 
uh, I looked up the the sort of hierarchy. He would have been beholden to a king, but in his area, he would have been like the dominant force. Um, and um, uh, it turns out that he's actually um, his family were actually uh, usurpers, or they took over when um, the the previous rulers, um, um, Alfonso the Good, uh, his family um, um, ended up going to the Crusades. And so Manfred's family were usurpers, and there was a legend. Although to be fair, they weren't. They weren't. They didn't like angrily. Like they didn't. No, scheme. no. Uh, it was like kind the, of. It's like the it, stewards it from them. Stewards of Gondor from Lord of the Rings, if right? You will. Um, right. He, he was. He was essentially. If I'm not mistaken, Alfonso said, "You can have my castle." He wasn't even begrudging it to him. He just said, yeah. uh, "You uh, take over my castle." But that's uh, Manfred's ancestor, Ricardo, I believe, was the one. Um, and uh, so Manfred's married to uh, Hippolyta. Um, he has uh, one son, Conrad, who's uh, sickly, and um, but he sort of dotes on Conrad because he's, he's his one hope for, for a line. Uh, he has a daughter named Matilda, who he sort of ignores. Um, and at the beginning of the story, Conrad's about to get married uh, to a woman named Isabella, um, and... Uh, uh, who's not really excited about the whole thing, but is willing to go through with it. Uh, Conrad uh, dies. A uh, massive helmet falls on him uh, in something <laughs> which is um, not explained rationally. So this is an explicitly supernatural thing that happens in the book. Um, it uh, resembles the giant statue of, of Alfonso the Good in the, uh, in the church. It was the church, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. But yeah, uh, uh, it resembles the statue, but it's actually made out of steel. So it's like a giant version of the actual Alfonso's helmet falls on Conrad and crushes him to death. Um, a uh, a young man named Theodore, uh, a peasant, um, points out that uh, this resembles the uh, the prophecy about um, uh, Manfred's family uh, or the the current. Uh, Rulers of Otranto being um, thrust out when the original owners become too big for the, what was it? Too big for the castle or too big for the? <laughs> yeah, they they yeah they grow too big for the castle. Yeah, um, and so uh, Manfred uh, logically, of course, uh, gets uh, blames uh, uh, Theodore for the helmet falling on him. You know, he shoots the messenger and um, accuses him of being a, a wizard of some sort and sentences him to uh, um, have to live under the helmet or until he dies. Um, <laughs> be imprisoned. Yeah, yeah under imprisoned the under the helmet. Um, uh, and then see. he plans to marry yeah, yeah. Um, um, Isabella. So, so he, um, he decides that he wants to continue his line, and his wife isn't going to give him any more sons. Um, so he wants to marry Isabella. Um, it's both for that reason, and obviously he's in lust. Um, and, um, so, uh, Isabella runs from him and, uh, manages to escape with the help of Theodore, who, who managed to survive the whole thing, uh, through secret compartments and so forth. Uh, Theodore, um, uh, uh helps Isabella, uh, to escape into, um, into a secret corridor. Um, uh, Manfred shows up and, you know, demands... Uh, I'm a, I'm a little hazy at this point. Um, well, at this point, when, it's, when it's, does it's the, a case uh, of 
Well, then a yeah. monk pr- comes to protect, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, protect him. The monk is eventually revealed to Friar be Friar Jerome is uh, Theodore's true father and the true uh, uh, heir to the um, to Alfonso the Great. The good. Anyway, it all it all gets very uh, convoluted in terms of who's related to who, and of course, yeah, Theodore turns out to be the true heir uh, to Alfonso, who nobody and, knew uh, existed. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Con and uh, Matilda and Isabella both fall in love with Theodore, and they have a conversation about uh, how they're both in love with him. They actually sort of um, talk it out logically, they're, so that that's an interesting, <laughs> pretty chill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they, decide they decide that. Um, that uh, Matilda is the one who uh, Theodore is in love with, and um, so eventually it all comes to head. And um, uh, Manfred is um, oh, uh, sorry, uh, Isabella's father Frederick shows up, um, and uh, he's from another kingdom, and uh, now he wants to marry Matilda, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So they want it. This is all the the medieval idea of just uniting bloodlines to secure one's claim on the, in this case, lordship. Um, but also, secure, Frederick's horn, as horny as Manfred in this case. Right, and uh, Theodore actually defeats him in battle and almost kills him. So he's sort of lying there recuperating for most of the story while he's after this fight. Um, anyway, there's so yeah, there's all this uh, entangled web, but it ends with uh, uh, Manfred well, you, accidentally you killing it, his daughter Matilda, uh, thinking that it's uh, Isabella, and then um, uh, Manfred decides, you know, sort of repents and uh, um, goes into the the church, you know, as a monk, right. you know, along which, with which uh, is really surprising. You wouldn't th- you you expect him to die horribly, yeah. you know, in punishment, and he he actually gets off pretty light. <laughs> He just yeah. goes into the church. Well, but, his uh, daughter died. It's sort of like uh, Godfather yeah. 3, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, this was inspired by Godfather 3, yes. Or maybe the other way around. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, uh, it's Not a, the it's best a, Godfather, but, you know, it's got some... Well, I mean, you can see in all of this, there's very clear uh, Shakespearean uh, yeah. um, um, influence. Um, and... Of course, all the you know conniving and over uh, bloodlines and so forth, and the and the tragic punishment, which is a bit King Lear esque. Yeah, and um, the uh, the romance uh, between um, uh, Matilda and uh, Theodore is sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing, where right one of them dies. It's it's a little different in in terms of the backstory, but it's it's their parents' um, feud that keeps them apart, sort of thing. Yeah, and actually, if you go back to Shakespeare, you can also, and I think Walpole actually explicitly mentioned that, uh, you know, you, you you've got Hamlet with the ghost uh, and a an usurper, but like, but the but the gothic, the supernatural elements as well uh, can be tied. You know, you can see reflections of Shakespeare um, in Hamlet, yeah, in the ghost in and the, the curse and Macbeth and the witches and so forth. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, in the uh, intro that Walpole wrote, uh, the one where he was sort of. Um, Doing the kayfabe, you know, pretending he was translating thing, um, <laughs> uh, criticized the author for for various things and said he would have been um, better suited to the stage rather than writing a novel. <laughs> yeah, and Which that's is, probably a reference to Shakespeare, but also, you know, yeah, take it himself. The, the significant thing is that Manfred is haunted by a ghost, except it's in most ways this is almost an archetypal you know, what you would think of as a gothic novel, except that the thing, the supernatural entity is a giant. 
yep. um, which is really weird. It's not a, and I mean, it's sort of a ghost, but it's also really huge, and it's this giant thing crashing through the the castle, dropping helmets on people, which is not a subtle ghostly haunting thing to do at all. Um, later, he, you know, they they find a, his sword. Uh, Frederick actually comes in with his sword. Uh, the giant sword, uh, and it's all sh- it's all sort of a rep- it's all representing the fact that you know the true heir has returned to the castle, um, and you know people catch glimpses of like a giant leg and a giant arm and so forth, and so it's it's and I mean it is creepy. <laughs> There's no getting around it, but it's just so weird that it's a giant and not a traditional ghost. Um, yeah, well, there are traditional ghosts as well. Saint Nicholas shows up, um, right? And there's yeah. Um, there's a scene where uh, uh, Manfred is trying to seduce Isabella, and uh, uh, Manfred sees the portrait of his ancestor Ricardo. Um, uh, a ghost. Uh, the portrait sort of leaves the frame and is a ghost, mm-hmm. which, um, right. as I uh, feel like bringing up, uh, is uh, probably the inspiration for a major part of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's Grudigore, which is basically a parody of gothic storytelling in general um right uh the the well you see well the the basic story of uh rudigor is that uh this uh family line the the baronet position is cursed by a witch so that the baronet has to commit an evil deed every day or else he'll die um and uh the the main character who gets out of it for most of his life and is thrust back in in the second act uh, his name is Riven, by the way, which is a reference to uh, Lord Riven, spelled Ruthven, which is the first vampire character in literature, in English literature. Um, so uh, Riven um, is trying to uh, get out of uh, doing an evil deed, but it, his entire uh, portrait gallery of relatives comes out of their frames and, uh, you know, say, you know, they all stopped committing an evil deed and they all died. At the end, it's revealed right. that... Um, uh, that uh, not committing an evil deed is tantamount to suicide, which itself is a crime, so none of them are actually dead. <laughs> but that's Gilbert and Sullivan well, for you. Yes. Well, that's but see, so that's a that's a thing that um, you know the the haunted portrait is. I think that was a thing that was a very long staple for a long time, and and of course you see the the equivalent of that in the idea that there's a passage behind a portrait, and people would open it up and look out through the portrait's eyes, which yeah. of course is the classic Scooby Doo move. <laughs> yeah. But I mean that goes again, like all of this goes all the way back for hundreds of years, up right up to the 20th century. Um, all the all the sort of classic Halloweeny stuff uh, has its origins in this, the Gothic novel. Um, I, I do want to so let's uh, let's talk about here um, um, and then the other the other big element here is Manfred is never specifically said to have been driven mad uh, but he sure acts like it he he acts irrationally from yeah the it moment says that he's normally dies. a good it says like the text the narration said he's normally a good person but he's acting out of character which is right. very weird because everything we see up from him he's like a rapist and the, or attempted right. rapist and uh, yeah yeah. And, he's, and he, I mean, he immediately starts accusing people of being witches, and and I mean, it's I can't even remember if it's explicitly said, but it's clear that he understands what's happening. That somebody's coming to take away the castle from him, yeah. um, and that seems to be driving him to do all this. And so, I mean, there's a psychological element to all this, which would have been rare. Certainly, you wouldn't have seen it in classic, you know, 
spookum stories uh, up to this point. And uh, it's more in keeping with what at that point was modern novel writing. Yeah, so that's really so, what a Taranto was doing. He was, or that's really what Walpole was doing. He was uniting these sort of threads. He was turning a, an old-fashioned spookum into a modern novel. And yeah, so the, the, the that, idea of modern novels at the time was that it was realistic. It was how people actually acted. Or at least, right. suppose that was the goal. Um, right. So it was how uh, uh, people of the era, uh, how their manners were, how their uh, customs and um, their thought processes and so forth, all realistic. And in this case, it sort of yeah. thrusts those kinds of characters into a situation where ghosts exist. Right. And that's that was, and that I think had to do with why there was a certain oh, this is tacky because it has to do with the supernatural. Um, actually, so that's that's something... Uh, just to talk about the, the etymology here, Goths, um, of course, famously, uh, the Gothic tribes were the ones that uh, sacked Rome back in the... Uh, in the in the third or fourth century. Um, and we call the fall of Rome, even though Rome continued for a while after that. Uh, but um, they, uh, th you know, so Gothic was associated with the Germanic tribes. And so there's a specific historical and geographical tie to it, just as romantic uh, it deals with, you know, it, it, initially the Romans, then it became uh, like Spanish, Italian, and Southern and French, especially Southern French, which are the Romance languages, as in they're derived from the Latin, from the Roman. Uh, so there was a geographical sensibility, but it became more of an aesthetic sensibility as the years went on. Um, when Gothic architecture started to appear, uh, right about the time this novel is set, uh, is when Gothic uh, cathedrals started to be built. Um, they were, that was actually. Um, Although they were, you know, you did see them in Northern Europe, but they, the main reason they were called Gothic was apparently that the Italians, or some Italians, said, oh, that's barbaric. It's like, you know, the Gothic, meaning the people who sacked Rome, you know, not the civilized Italian style, but the, the, the barbaric Northern Europeans, uh, you know, style. And that's what, that's, that's where the word, like a lot of artistic movements, uh, Gothic came from an insult, uh, and then it became basically the the de facto style all through the Middle Ages for, for cathedrals, because it's very effective. Uh, it, it evokes, you know, airiness. It's flying buttresses, vaulted ceilings, pointed uh, arches. Uh, so it's to create a sense of, like, grandeur and weightlessness and, you know, towers up in the sky. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, modern-day Castlevania, you know, Dracula's castle, it's got yeah, these sort of it's like, things <clears throat> coming out of the tower that are, you know, gravitationally impossible. <laughs> it's that kind of it's thing. It's like um, uh, Gothic architecture is like, you would expect the Eye of Sauron to be on top of it sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, in a sense. Uh, I mean, at the time, the main thing was, um, it was actually like it would have been considered when it was built to be very modern and to be airy and more open than the sort of dingier, uh, blockier style that you would have had before that. Uh, but of course, because it, that was all through the Middle Ages and it became a tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years, it became associated with the, you know, old-fashioned dingy Middle Ages. Uh, and then, so what of course happened was that the, um, the, uh, the uh, Enlightenment happened and you started to have uh, science take over from from you know rationality from uh, from superstition at least that's the simplified <laughs> uh, version in theory. of the yeah in theory um, but the idea that people started to look to science and, and rationality and, and more orderly processes uh, in their lives um, and it also sort of started to take away from the the 
the idea of the monarchy because the monarchy is literally and the nobility is literally founded on the idea that we're 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 chosen by God to be the special powerful people. And if you take away, well, God orders the universe and start saying, well, there are processes you could look at and blah blah blah, it starts to implicitly go a bit more egalitarian. Uh, of course, you know, you didn't immediately have the monarchy collapsing and you know castles falling, but uh, Still there hasn't was happened. <laughs> not not exactly uh but th there was a tension that that was drawn and there was a you know around the time that this was written it's between something like the british civil war which was an attempt to you know depose the king and set up a something closer to a democracy not a full-on democracy but but um certainly something that took power out of the hands of the 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 gentry and the monarchy and uh, and then of course the french and american revolutions came at the end of the 17th century um so you or, know, he, uh, this was 18th century. Was, yeah, sorry, 18th century, the 1700s. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> always usual, hard. Yeah, usual confusion. Um, but uh, the uh, but that was the the tension of that whole era in which Walpole was writing, uh, where you know we hadn't gotten to something like you know Marxism yet, but we definitely you know the the, the peasants were revolting a lot, um, and that that's something that you see uh, in culture all in many many ways in many subtle and nuanced ways throughout culture um ironically uh, since i just said gothic and romantic were initially seen as geographically opposed to each other but you get the the romantic uh, era which was a response to this uh it was the idea of um you know well maybe not everything in life is orderly and scientific and rational maybe there's something irrational and something wild and untamable out there you know nature and and the human subconscious, which people were starting to become aware of. Uh, and that's what the Romantic movement started to uh, tap into. And Gothic is kind of the extreme, dark, somewhat unsettling and horrific version of this, essentially. Um, this idea that, well, yeah, well, there's still this dead hand of history reaching out into what's becoming a more modern era uh, haunting us. Although, of course, at the time, Gothic novels were explicitly set in the past. Um, that was always the the uh, the, the setup for that. Um, but that is the that is the uh, the tension that's at play in the Gothic novel. It's it's maybe a somewhat it's a combination between uh, you know peasant superstition and also but why is there a monarchy and you know we don't trust those monarchs anymore. They go they get up to weird stuff in their castles. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, 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 Count Dracula's up there sucking everyone's blood. You know, it's that that kind of viewpoint uh, started to come to the fore, essentially. Um, and uh, the uh, so then you, yeah, you see it in other novels. We talked about Vathek, which is very similar, um, and it's Arabian Nights thing. And the monk is about a you know a sinister evil monk. Uh, Melmoth the Wanderer is about uh, a guy who's cursed by Satan and wanders around. Not cursed, he makes a deal with the devil, uh, but essentially it's the same thing. He wanders around, uh, you know, doing evil stuff and and getting involved, and he's always the sinister bad guy. So it's a, it's you can see this, you know, standard aspect of the Gothic genre of um, oh the evil monarchy, you know, the the tyrant, the sinister figure who's attained power and wealth and status even if he's not literally a king, um, but he's, he's begging to be brought down by curses and by the supernatural, which will, which will do it, you know, that some older force than what we, what we believe in these days will reach out and, and bring him down. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
you know, like, because Vathek's the same thing, right? The Vathek, Vathek is him literally basically making, again, making a deal with the devil. Um, he's he's that, also a king, he's a caliph. And, uh... Yeah, he's a caliph, yeah. It, it essentially, as you say, it becomes, it, you're talking about Redegor being a parody of that, but that that is that is literally what it is. It's, well, you have to do evil stuff and I'll give you all this cool power. Yeah. Um, but he keeps having, you know, the, the forces of good tell him, no, don't do evil things, repent. And in his case, you know, re- return to Islam don't rather than Christianity. But it's the same basic principle of, you know, join the, you know, join, restore, join God. Uh, but he's like, no, no, I want to do bad, evil stuff for temporal power and the sins of the flesh. Um, which, and, like uh, I say, in this, go ahead. Yeah, he ends up descending into uh, what is essentially hell and meeting what is essentially the devil. Uh, it's a... Sorry, I didn't write any of the names from Vathek down, but uh, uh, it's Eblis an Islamic is the name. Yeah, it's e- an Islamic figure who refused to bow down to um, Adam, I believe, in in the Quran. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, and he's granted worldly, you know, uh, all the power he wanted, but only for a few days, and then he'll be cursed for all eternity. Right. And his, uh, his... so he spends the his last few days kind of. You know, like none of this is worth it. <laughs> he gets to see the treasures of hell, um, and that's of course a, a commentary. The idea that ooh, the treasures of hell—that sounds awesome—and then he sees it, it's like that wasn't worth it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Vathek had a lot of interesting elements. Uh, this is sort of an aside, but it—the it, um, idea of uh, um, he sees a bunch of pre uh, pre Adamite kings, so uh, uh, people who ruled the world before Adam. And this seems to be a common uh, heresy in, in all three Abrahamic religions. The idea that uh, before Adam there was another race of humans. Uh, right. That may be going back thousands of years even before Adam. So, um, mm-hmm. And it explains where, you know... Well, yeah, yeah. It's sort of... Yeah. It, it fixes a few minor continuity errors in the Bible, but... Um, <laughs> for, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. if you want to treat it that way, but, um, yeah. it, it is considered a heresy and it's not widely accepted, but it is sort of a thing that some people have believed. Right. Well, and that's, that's, that's actually interesting. And it's worth noting with Otranto, it's, it's not, um, the, the element of, you know, diabolism isn't really present in um, Otranto. It's it's actually pretty tame compared to what came later. Both, you know, all the books, the other books I mentioned, um, they uh, they do introduce the idea of the, the, the guy being effectively a satanic figure or someone who's sold their soul to the devil in one way or another to be as evil as possible, which again was actually interesting because it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it was something that shows up in a lot of literature, even non-supernatural literature, like um, Vanity Fair, uh, you know, and and uh, Candide by Voltaire. It's the idea of just how bad can we get away with making the main character anti-heroes? Uh, that became a real thing around this time period. And Marquis de Sade was writing at this point, and in fact, Marquis de Sade has been linked to Gothic uh, literature. Some of his stuff has Gothic overtones, uh, even though I don't... I, I think he wrote a bit of... Uh, supernatural but it's not his major work obviously um and and yeah it's it's linked into that idea of you know well if oh, as we said a bit before this but uh i think john milton might fall into this a little bit literally making satan his main character right that was probably yeah that's he's milton's right about the time of isaac newton i believe 
and uh, 16 um, late 1600s i think or right late 1600s. which is a, yeah as i say that's that's i believe that's also when isaac newton uh and and as a result again so you see with the enlightenment and with the idea of well the world runs according to principles that we can understand what does that mean for religion and you know well it's not necessarily a logical uh uh, train of thought, but clearly some people then run with it to, well, God is dead and we can uh, worship Satan, <laughs> like <laughs> do whatever we want. Um, as always, that's the the great fear of fundamentalists right up to our time of like, well, if people learn too much science, they'll stop believing in God. And Oh yeah, uh, Dennis Prager no saying if it weren't for the Bible, he'd be raping everybody, which says more about him than it does about anybody else, really. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, not getting into Dennis Prager, but that, I mean, clearly that subtext, uh, then started to run throughout history and culture, which is not to say that like diabolism didn't exist in, you know, folktales and, and literature before that. Uh, but it was because we'd gotten to the point of, well, we're civilized men. Now we can run a society based on order and logic and reason. Uh, the fact that that train was still there and they didn't, you know, they had all this, this leftover stuff from the medieval era and they didn't know what to do with it, whether it was literally the castles and the artifacts or the morality and the, the sensibility of, of the culture. Um, you know, that's basically where Gothic arc lives. It's that the tension of the dead hand of history, as I said, waiting on what's out there, <laughs> what, what's what the world that's trying to be born. Um, and, and the way uh, people, you know, People almost have, uh, as I as I quoted in that passage from Walter Scott at the beginning, it was almost like um, you can you, sure you're not a peasant in the Middle Ages, so you don't believe as wholeheartedly. Gothic is trying to get you back to the mindset of that peasant in the Middle Ages, where you believe it in spite of yourself, and maybe there's even a greater resonance because you don't believe in it, but you can be tricked into. You know, it's late at night, it's dark. You're huddled around a fire and someone's telling a spooky story, right? It's that 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 irrational sense that that haunts us, which is all horror. But the Gothic was the first one to really tap into that. Uh, there's a quote from Edmund Burke here: um, "The sublime is that which is or produces the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. The sublime is most often evoked by terror, and to cause terror, we need some amount of obscurity." We can't know any, everything about that which is inducing terror, or else a great deal of the apprehension vanishes. Obscurity is necessary in order to experience the terror of the unknown. So, yeah, it's it's a sort of, it's it's doing an end run around the rational part of your brain. Long long story short. And again, we're talking about just horror in general in many ways. And uh, uh, but Lovecraft would really uh, capitalize on this in his sort of um, method of, because he was... Um, "Quote unquote rational." He was an, an atheist, and he, you know, um, didn't believe in um, the supernatural. So um, um, he would treat. Um, uh, so for him, horror came from like the the idea that we don't truly understand the universe, and there's there's just um, it doesn't care about us, and we're just nothing in the grand scheme. Of exactly. Things. But also, the, and, and even, also even, the the idea of not you know, not showing everything like the, we don't quite know what the monster looks like or that sort of thing. So there's that aspect of it, the, the obscurity sort of, um, yeah. Letting your imagination run wild with it. 
Yeah, exactly. Lovecraft is almost a perfect example of that, you know, that having evolved down into the modern day of, you know, and, and when we're he even more modern He was apparently very influenced rational. by Vathek as well. Uh, uh, oh, yeah? His unfinished uh, uh, novel uh, he was going to base on Azathoth was apparently going to be based on um, Vathek. And uh, there's some uh, literary criticism that says the uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath was possibly inspired by Vathek as well. Right. Certain um, use of Orientalism and stuff sort of has that in yeah, common. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually a thing that is common um, in literature in general, and not unique to Gothic literature, but um, that was a common thing at the time uh, for many, many, and again, Shakespeare does this as well, setting it in a foreign land, which is not complete, oh, I mean, Vathek is quite, uh, you know, apart from uh, what a European audience would perceive. But even if you set it in, like, Spain or Italy, um, like Shakespeare setting a lot of his stuff in Italy, for instance, uh, and, and it makes it exotic enough for the audience to sort of perceive it as a fantasy world, even if it isn't technically that. It makes it like, well, this isn't like our world anymore. This isn't the world I know. It's some foreign land where they do things differently. And that um, continued up until the 19th century with... Um you know, Dracula being set in Transylvania and a lot of vampire stories being set in Styria and places like yeah. that, sort of. Yeah, a um, hundred... Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all that idea. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's why, you know, Orientalism was a big mode for fantasy for a long time, just the idea of setting it in the, you know, the Middle East, Middle Ages. Uh, but then they started to, and I mean, uh, as this novel also introduces, is the idea that, uh, well, you can also do that by setting it in the past, in kind of a, a you know a a, for, a misty forgotten past. Uh, you can get the same effect of distance, which uh, is what people start to rely on. And in fact, again, some people insist that to be a proper gothic, it has to be literally set in the Middle Ages or or uh, or the medieval period. Um, and I, you know, I think most people would say that well, it doesn't have to literally be in that period, but you have that era again pervading into the present in that it's set in ruins and castles and catacombs and cathedrals and monasteries that are still lingering in our society. Uh, and, you know, someone like, and of course the, the ghost idea and Dracula himself being literally a relic of an ancient time brought into the present and so forth. Um, oh, and, so uh, there was a, uh, a movie adaptation of sorts of uh, Otranto. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, made in 1977, it's about 17 or 18 minutes long, so a short film. Um, it's uh, by a Czech director, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Jan Svankmajer. Uh, yeah. Svankmajer. Um, <laughs> yep. He, he also did a, an interesting uh, stop-motion version of Alice in Wonderland that I've seen clips of. It looks good. Yeah. Uh, I watched this, uh, I couldn't find uh, English subs for it, so... I didn't really understand what was going on fully, but I read the book, so it sort of made sense. Um, it's basically right. a documentary of um, modern uh, Czech uh, people uh, discovering a castle that they think might be the one from, you know, the basis for the castle of Otranto. And um, oh, okay. it's intercut. Did they discover it in it? Did they discover it in Italy, or did they discover it's in, it? In, it's in Czech, so it's like a Czech castle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, like it's it's a complete made up um, right, right. conceit. 
framing um, story. Yeah. yeah, framing story. And which it's, is uh, which is very true to Gothic in its yep, own way to have a framing uh, story like that. And it's intercut with animated segments that sort of summarize or yeah summarize the book basically. Uh, they're like it's medieval style and it's uh, it's cut out animation, so it's um, yeah, so it's like stop motion but with flat images. Um, and it basically, yeah. I had trouble taking it seriously because it looks so much like Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> um, yeah. But I know it was going for, you know, the medieval aesthetic. It just kind of, I just couldn't, I. Yeah, yeah. I just kept picturing but, British accents talking about, you know, or, or like, yeah. a, especially the giant walking around the castle constantly. Um, I was yeah, just reminded like of, the, what was that one about the giant hedgehog or the. Dinsdale? Yeah, Dins yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Spiny Norman the Hedgehog, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just reminded me of that so anyway. much. Um, but it, it was interesting. I, I believe, like I said, I don't speak the language, and YouTube no longer does the translation feature automatically. Um, but uh, apparently it ends with a, um, a disclaimer that uh, this whole thing is fake and it's not actually a real castle they discovered because, you know, Soviet... Uh, uh, sensors at the time didn't want you know fantastical things um right yeah showing so up there in you, their in their media so there, there's that theme again right like, yeah uh, the, the 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 tension between you know rationality and and i mean that is why you know the the hardcore marxists you know they saw anything fantastical as sort of bourgeois and and uh there is you know there's something to be said for that is a historical analysis, which is what again Goth is kind of getting into the fact that it's a uh, that it's this. Uh, that well, it's I mean, a like the, the Frankfurt past. School were against jazz music. Yeah, well, that anyway, it's very complicated, <laughs> but that's a, an undertone that's that's sort of running through everything uh, mm -hmm. with Goth. Just this the tension between the the past that we can never quite escape and its creepiness. Well, the storm clouds brew and the thunder crashes, so it's time once again to retreat to our moldering castle on the moors. Uh, we are the ghosts of Adam Prosser and Philip Rice, condemned to podcast eternally for our sins. Oh no. Uh, as <laughs> yes! Yes! As always, we want to thank our producer and engineer Alex Ross, who reigns over the Never Sleeps Network from his crumbling tower in the mountains. Uh, the haunting music you hear is from Jack Fierick, who is driven mad by the burden of writing our theme song, and who lingers still in the catacombs. On a quiet night, you can still hear his wails of torment echoing through the walls. Uh, if you don't want to make a deal with Lucifer himself, you can listen to our podcast early by subscribing to our Patreons. Uh, just search for Adam Prosser or Philip Rice at Patreon, or check the links on the website at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. We also haunt social media, including Facebook, Tumblr, and YouTube on Philip's channel. And if you're willing to brave the cursed website of Twitter, you can witness our mad scrawlings at WMU Podcast. Philip is SpearHafok underscore, and I'm Prankster36. Also, we're on the Greenlit Podcast Network now at greenlitpodcast.com, so check out all the other great shows there. And until next time, safe travels, wanderers. And even if the rain blows and the winds start to howl, stay clear of that haunted manor on the moor, lest ye suffer a fate worse than death. <laughs>